welcome to the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. Each week on the podcast, I'll share stories and tactics along with other industry experts as we share actionable steps that will transform your business and your life. Here at the Salon Owners Collective, we believe that in order to truly achieve freedom and profit, you must first fully step into your role as Salon CEO. I'm your host, Larissa McClemon, and I help salon owners master their inner salon CEO by implementing a strategic framework to grow your business and scale your team. So wherever you are in the world, I want to officially invite you to join me in this episode to make an important step in your journey towards salon mastery as a salon CEO and welcome into your life more freedom and profit. Hey, thanks for joining me on another episode of the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. Now, at the end of the day, success is the goal for all of us. Am I right? But success looks different for everyone. And in the salon industry, there are some success stories that are known by so many, you know, the kind of success that we all undeniably aspire to achieve. One of those success stories is Sharon Blaine. Now, if you haven't heard of her or met her, Sharon is an industry legend and a salon owner extraordinaire turned industry educator. Now, I remember buying tickets at Hair Expo to watch her when I was a young 20-something salon owner aspiring to be a long hair artist like herself. Now, in this episode, Sharon is going to share some secrets to her overwhelming success and provide you with some ideas, some inspiration and some tips about what it takes to be a successful business owner in such a competitive industry. We'll cover topics ranging from team management, marketing, staff performance, training, and lots, lots more. So I'm super excited for this one. Let's jump in. I can't wait for you to meet Sharon. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me on the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. It's great to be here. I really appreciate uh, having some of your time and you sharing some of your expertise. So why don't we start with, for those very few people who don't know who you are, uh, where are you in the world? What do you do? And how did you get to be doing it? Well, I'm actually based in Sydney. Um, I've been hairdressing for, I think we're going to say 54 years. I haven't uh, done the sums. We might have clicked over another year since I was saying 54. But 54 consecutively never leaving the industry years. Um, I kicked off as a country hairdresser in Bathurst at uh, about 14 years and nine months. And now everybody knows my age. Um, I've always been a passionate hairdresser. It's been, there's been nothing more in my life than doing hair. I've been a successful salon owner. I've owned salons in the country as well as salons in the city. And, um, I've since gone on once I've sold my salons or prior to, um, you know, I've always had a passion for education. So I decided many, many, many years ago that I would really like to share my knowledge. And I think that much, that many years of education, obviously accrues a fair bit of knowledge. Um, so I've since gone on to be recognized pretty much internationally. So I um, host and hold classes um, around the world. Um, I'm away six months of the year now, traveling, um, teaching my long hair skills. And when I come home, I'm doing a little bit of work in Australia as well. Um, I first came across you as a young salon owner. Uh, I think I was 21 the first time I flew to Hair Expo and bought a ticket to your show. <laughs> so that was, wow. a, that was a long time ago also. So um, I'm very pleased to have you come and share your, your depth of knowledge and a bit of your story, really. So, um, well, look, let's start off with uh, a little bit of your journey around 
salon ownership because they know you grew a big team, uh, a team of 46. Um, and I, I had a team of 30. I mean, I know how challenging that is, but, you know, new level, new devil. I felt like every new team member above each one sort of changed the dynamic quite dr drastically. So I know yes. a team of 46 is huge, especially yeah. when we're employing people, uh, women who are having babies and um, it's a constant change. So uh, tell us, if you will, what are, what are some really important things to think about when we are growing a team? When, um, when I started The Art of Hair, which uh, I started in a little suburb called Marsfield, which is um, not so far away from Epping, I bought a salon and there was just one Fergie hairdresser there and we rapidly uh, grew that salon to around 10 in about 18 months. Um, at that stage, I decided that we needed to have a point of difference and that point of difference for me was about being a successful competition hairdresser, a winning award salon. And, the, you know, everyone can um, sprout that they're award winning. It's, it's, a, it's a title everybody can just put on their marketing, but I wanted to... I wanted to be able to prove that we were that way. So we did focus a lot on competitions in those days, and they were generally industry competitions. Um, we, we worked very hard to win them, and then we could rightly um, and proudly hang the banner that we were an award-winning salon, which did attract a lot of um, staff to our salon because at that stage, award-winning and winning awards was something a lot of people wanted to be involved in as well. Clients saw that as, um, you know, obviously they must be good. So they were drawn to us. And because we were training so consistently to win awards, um, the education and the training within the salon was absolutely nonstop. So, you know, the team would, would stay back three, three nights a week, maybe four, depending. They were always, um, you know, training on mannequin heads, bringing in models. Well, we were bringing outsiders in to train cutting, colouring. So training has been part of my DNA from the very first day I started hairdressing. Um, we went on from Marsford because the salon was only tiny. We went on to uh, buy another salon that, was, that became available to purchase in um, Beecroft. And I also set up a salon in Penitals. So these were all within... 10, 15 Ks of each other, so it was easy to manage, but it was a, an absolute nightmare. Um, I found managing a chain of salons probably worse than running a team of 46 because I couldn't be in every salon. You had to depend on people to um, run the business the way you would want to run it, and I think when the boss is away, the people play, and it wasn't um, a good period in my time. So I went on to um, open and close or sell off two of the salons and kept the Beecroft salon. Beecroft was a, a suburb where I always had a passion to own a salon. I've always liked that area, liked the demographics, liked the type of people that live there. I liked the fact that it was a fairly um, affluent area where people were, uh, you know, had money. They were people that had, were buying in for the third time, so they weren't just new people buying in the area. They had already bought and sold a few times before they could even get there. So it was a really good place to set up, and I always knew that I could actually charge a good price there. So it was always important for me to make sure I was in an area where I could charge good money, and that is exactly what we did. We charged a lot of money. 
So when I um, bought the original Beecroft Salon, it was very small. And within a very, very short time, um, I was looking for a larger premises. And down the road and around the corner, um, Franklin's supermarket was vacant. So I decided to see if I could get into that place. It was an absolute nightmare. If anyone's walked into a supermarket that's been shut down for 10 years, they might understand what I face. So I faced refrigerators and coolers. Um, I faced rubble. I faced floor, flooring that had been down for probably 50 years. Um, I recall the tilers having to actually burn the, the old uh, tiles off the floor, which was a massive cost to us. And, you know, the whole fit out was a seven-month fit out. I was working with a business coach at the time. He was very, very good, and we would meet on a monthly basis. And I knew how much money I had to borrow from the bank. So we constantly did the sums on whether I was going to be able to meet the repayments. And even in the little salon, I was comforted to know that at that little salon was generating enough funds for us to be able to meet the repayments to the bank once we moved down and around the corner. So it was a massive opportunity to put my stamp on Beecroft to create an environment that I always wanted to create. I had a wonderful designer. We ended up with something like 10 wash basins, 23 styling units. We had a purpose-built childcare. Uh, that was a very interesting journey, going to council and trying to work out what I needed um, to have a childcare facility in my salon. We also had a beautiful area that was for beauty. I subleased beauty, so I was never one to employ people or I've never been one to employ people in an area that I didn't know. So it was important to me to, to actually bring in beauty but not actually employ those people because I knew I didn't know anything about their business and it wasn't going to work for me because I didn't know enough about it, but I knew we needed to have it. So I subleased the floor space, so I basically worked out how much floor space they were getting, what amenities they were using. We put a price on everything, and that was their rental. Um, as far as the childcare was concerned, I sought out many councils. I tried to work out what was needed for childcare. And because the women that were coming to my environment weren't leaving their children there, I didn't fall under a banner of what, I, what you would expect to be a childcare banner. So I didn't need a toilet for little kids. I didn't have a ratio number that I needed to have. But because I did the, always make sure – sorry? Because the, because the parent was still on the premise? Yeah, because they never left the, the premises. They needed to take their children with them, and for many obvious reasons as well. So, so was this I, for the clients or for the team or this, for both? So, so it was about the clients, but it was also very much about the team. So I saw it as a way, um, a marketing tool to bring new young mums to my salon. Um, the main reason why I sort of decided to go down that road was that I didn't want to lose. I was starting to see that my, my staff were wanting to have babies because I had a lot of married women. They were all young married women and they now started to want to have a family. And unlike what we're seeing today when people have babies, they don't come back. They set up at home. I created this facility for them to be able to bring their babies to work and for them to be given time out through the middle of the day to breastfeed and for them to book and come um, into the childcare when it suited them. So there was never any hard and fast rule as you'd have to come back full time or anything like that. 
So they chose to come back three, four days a week. So we rostered them into the childcare facility. Um, for the for the clients, I promoted it very, very strongly. And, you know, it was that it, the reason being was that it, what I was finding was that we were opening three late nights a week, but we were filling our three late nights a week with uh, mums who had to wait for their husbands to come home to look mm. after their children. And I thought if I could push these people into the to the day bookings and keep those spots open for business women getting off the train or coming after work, <clears throat> we could have more clients. And that's exactly what happened. The women were very, very happy to come in through the day and not have to come at night. Uh, so we were able to offer their children a lovely environment. They were a caring, nurturing environment to be cared for. So we had new babies. We went right up to um, five years of age or preschoolers. Um, we had an area where the babies could sleep. So we had one room that had glassed-in partitioning um, that we could look into all the time. We could see little babies resting. So the prams could go in there. On the other side of that facility, we could have the carers could look in and see what was going on. But at the same time, they could be entertaining children with painting and craft and various things that they used to do. It was also set up, so it actually reverted to a cutting salon for children after school hours. So we stopped the, the actual childcare at three because we didn't want to, we didn't want to have to look after any kids that were childcare, at school age. Sure. Um, but they were welcome to go in there and watch videos. So parents could still leave them in there or they would have their hair cut in there. So it was really designed fantastically, actually. So there were like little units that looked like little beach huts, but they were also areas where we pushed chairs in and they could have their hair cut in there as well. So it was a multi-purpose sort of build that we did there. But um, I was only talking to someone recently, and I would say that we would have had attracted at least 19 new clients a week that had children. We promoted in Sydney's Child, which was a very, very popular uh, newspaper. I'm not even sure if it goes around anymore, but they did stories. They were our clients. They were always promoting our facility. So we got a lot of people through them. And then we went through, um, you know, childcare groups and things like that, and we promoted the fact that we were um, looking after their children. So, you know, when it comes to Valentine's Day, it was a great way to promote Valentine's Day to dads. So, you know, buy a package for your wife and, you know, husbands used to come in and buy a, a, buy a Valentine's package and they would send their wives in a hire car um, uh, to drop oh, the, yeah. the children and the mum off for maybe a beauty service or a, and then a, a blow dry or whatever. So they look good as well. So, you know, it was a multi-way of marketing uh, this business and to increase client numbers was phenomenal. And you know, sure. those kids stayed. I, I did some of those kids for their wedding. So, you know, I really get quite angry at salons that put a ban up, no children allowed. I'm sorry if you don't like children, then really you shouldn't be in our business because if you're not growing your next generation of clients through young kids coming in and having a great experience, then you're are very narrow-minded to think that your business is going to sustain itself through years and years and years. And that business sustained itself for 32 years um, successfully, million, multi-million dollar business. 
I think that's um, my story. Yeah, I love that story because, you know, you've really worked out a niche uh, and really purpose built to that niche and really doubled yes. down on that. I, I uh, but not only that. Sell, yeah, I think salon owners have to look at stop competing with what's down the road. Mm. Stop looking at what everybody else is doing. I didn't, I didn't even know for I think something like 10 months, someone said, oh, did you know a salon had just opened up in the shopping centre across the road? I didn't even know. I didn't care. It isn't about what's going on around me. It is about what's going within my environment. I didn't care what they were charging down the road. I didn't follow them. I didn't, it was totally, I was totally disinterested and removed from all of that. And, you know, I think that's what, Today, we have to think about, forget about what others are doing. Stop trying to match and marry and do what everyone looking, those that are looking successful are doing, but create your own culture, your own brand, and offer a point of difference all the way. I think that's it. You know, it, there's a really clear point of difference specifically for a specific type of customer, and you've really mm. clearly thought that through with an extra sprinkle of future proofing like it's the best yes. future proofing so future proofing um, the next generation <laughs> yeah but also locking in the staff who were highly likely to leave when they had their baby and never come back yeah, so i was sure. very lucky at that time childcare was pretty much non-existent well it was but the biggest cry was that um, there was not a lot of facilities that could take your baby. So when every staff member fell pregnant, it was always an assumed that they would be back. And I would say to them, if you come back in three months' time, I will offer you two years of childcare any time at any stage that you want to come back. And they turned to – so we didn't even lose clients when they left to have their baby mm. because the clients knew – well, someone's going to look after me for six or eight weeks or three months, whenever that would be. So I'm pretty lucky that I can go back to Jill or I can go back to Nancy or whoever it is um, because they're going to be coming back. So I can rebook them when they come back from maternity leave. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah so it's so, a way to go. For sure, for sure. Uh, um, thinking big. So I do want to ask you about sort of transitioning from salon owner to educator, but before we do that, um, I am keen just to hear your thoughts on managing primarily, I don't know if it was all women, but primarily 46 personalities. Like you must have some yes. insight and uh, skills around that for sure. Well, you know, it. it <laughs> I've got to look back in hindsight and think, oh, it was fabulous. But, you know, I probably forget all <laughs> the, the other things. Um, yeah, look, trying to add someone new to a staff and try to get – someone like-minded, it was always an issue. Um, in the heady days of the art of hair, when I advertised for staff, I got, actually got applicants. Unlike today, or even two years ago when I was still owning businesses, uh, you know, you would advertise extensively and still never get anyone show up. Or you'd advertise for an apprentice and never get anyone up. Yes, you would get them to apply, but they never showed up for an interview. So I know this happens and I know it happens worldwide because I talk to people constantly about this issue. So I was lucky enough to get people to sign up, but I did find that a lot of them wanted to be me. They thought if they worked for me, they would be the new Sharon Blaine. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that, but they probably forget that you can't just automatically be the new Salon Blaine, uh, the new Salon, the new Sharon Blaine. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, 
to, she only wanted me. So uh, just keep that in mind because um, I'm not going to sort of relinquish the crown. So you have to join for a purpose. And the reason has to be that you're passionate about hairdressing. You want to join a team that's also very passionate, that are willing to train and be involved and committed to being better people and better hairdressers. So, you know, getting ideally like-minded people, it's very, very difficult. So there was always, um, I would always hand them my, um, their manual. So the, the actual manual that they were presented and I would ask them to go and read the policy and procedures manual and what you're signing up for. And then they would have to come back to me and say, after you've read this, is that something that you're willing to commit to? And some people actually didn't, which is great because it's good to know up front that that's how it is. Um, I think the biggest thing was keeping them all happy was to obviously be available for them, not to uh, hear. I was always very mindful of managing any sort of gossip and, and trying to shut it down. We always had a breakfast meeting, so communication was always very important. So every Friday... We always met at the coffee shop. Everybody ordered breakfast. I picked up the tab. But they were always informed about performances, not individual performances, but we noteworthy, um, excellent performances from the week before, um, anything that was coming up, any marketing that was happening, anything that was coming up in the future. Everybody in that meeting always knew what was new and what was happening. Sometimes at that meeting I would arrive with a, uh, a whole pile of notes and pencils, and I would say before we eat today, I want you to go just pop around to the salon. I've left it open. Pop into the salon and find 10 things that don't look good as a client. So, you know, as a client walking into that salon today, because I would have seen that someone didn't sweep the hair up properly, walk in there and find 10 things that you think just don't reflect well on our business and come back very quickly. So you've got 10 minutes to run around the corner write 10 things down and come back. And we'd have a whiteboard and we'd get the share on the whiteboard. And pretty much everything was the salon doesn't look clean, the towels aren't folded properly, the coffee cups aren't arranged properly in the tea and coffee area. Um, actually, there's coffee, there's tint spilled here. You know, so things that didn't look good, we everybody could see them and it was really good. And that's one of the things I think is really important for the staff to recognise um, what a clients will be looking at when they walk in and sit in that chair. So that was key, obviously. Um, and then we would actually then set out an action plan. So sadly enough for those young apprentices, they would have to go back and action the mess straight away before we got into it. Other things we would do is if there was a massive issue with someone, we would actually call the people together that were having the issue we would put that person there and we would, in a very kind way, share how they were feeling about her, the way she was care treating them. So it's not about you did this and you did that. It was all about you need to know how I feel when you said that to me or when you treated me like that in front of the client. And opening um, a conversation like that with that person, with those people, because they if they're going to come to me and bitch and moan about Mary, treating them badly, they need to be prepared to sit in front of Mary and share that with Mary. And, you know, we resolved a lot of stuff that way. It was really, really useful way of managing um, staff 
and their bad behavior. And for them to say, I'm really sorry, I didn't even realize that's how I treated you. And they would all go off as the best friends until it happened again in another month's time. And we'd do it all again. So, you know, I always addressed issues and, you know, I always made sure they were addressed immediately because if it was, a, if it was enough for that person to come to me, it was enough for me to take action immediately on that as well. I think what I like about your leadership style, um, Sharon, is that you're facilitating uh, what needs to happen, but in fact the responsibility is back on the team member yes. um, to share how they feel or to go back into the cell. You didn't stand up and say the towels weren't done, the tint was on the floor, yada, yada, yada. You're not no. speaking at them. You sent them back and engaged them physically and in, in looking for it and they discovered the challenges. And so when they're discovering it or they're owning how they're feeling, then they're holding on to the responsibility. And yeah. I think that's really important to highlight because I think these are the things that step us into leadership outside of management. And I think that's why I was able to grow a very successful team of 46. Now let's, let's, take, let's break the 46 down. Uh, 46 people come to work every week. Of that, there was probably five receptionists, and we needed two full-time receptionists all the time at the front desk, and we brought a third one in from about 10 to 3 every day on those busy days because we actually needed to manage the clients that were coming through. We were turning around anything for 550, 600 clients a week that were coming through that door. So that alone, the management of a meeting and greeting and the rebooking, because we had one girl basically working on rebookings as the clients left. We created a um, an energy in the salon and a need for that client to rebook. And we always made an urgency, if you don't book now, I can't guarantee that I can give you an appointment. We could put you on a cancellation list, but I would recommend that you at least you get into the system. And then if you need to change, we then can swap people around, but we can't swap you around if you're not in there to start with. We had um, at least an 83 to 85, sometimes the, around Christmas, we could get up to an 89% rebooking leading into that Christmas period. Um, and always then, of course, the biggest issue was once Christmas was over, you thought that the urgency fell off. But, you know, what we did was we did a very clever marketing thing. Every client got a Christmas present from um, the beginning of, well, when they came in for their Christmas dues, so it was about mid-November mid right through until Christmas Eve, we had a very big Christmas tree and we had little Christmas cards on it and every person was to take a card. So it was a handwritten card. Thank you so much for, actually we ended up having them printed. Thank you so much for um, being part of our community. And if you use this card before this date, which was always six weeks after Christmas, they could get a free treatment, a blow dry with a service, um, a partial service of foils, um, and a few bits and pieces like that. But it must be used six weeks out from Christmas. So then we would say to them, um, oh, we need to book you in with your card for your next service. So where people were falling short on that six weeks after Christmas when no one's in the salon, we actually had that jammed packed with little giveaways, not expensive giveaways. Um, but we ha And if it was a service with a blow-dry, it was always done with the uh, apprentice. So we always managed to have that book really pumping 
when most people were actually whinging about not being able to keep the business going in the new year. So I was always thinking ahead. It's always about for sure, for using sure. your noggin. <laughs> All right. Um, let's speak a little bit about uh, your journey uh, of being a business owner and also having a career in education. And was there a crossover? How did you manage that? How can you have two careers? Um, what is your sort of your high level thought on on juggling the both? Well, I've got to say juggling both was significantly difficult. I originally had started doing education with Swashkov. We then moved to Matrix for a short period of time. And then we went on to Goldwell and Goldwell had been my major um, person that was putting me out there as one of their educators. And I did that for many, many years around Australia. I had some wonderful opportunities with Goldwell, um, being invited to create brand, um, you know, their, to create images for their brand marketing internationally. Did that for a few years as well. I was very, very, very fortunate. Goldwell supported me extremely well, but at the end of the day, uh, we were, we were their biggest salon, I think, in Australia at the time. So obviously, yes, I'm going to be supported. Um, so it worked very nicely for me because I would be doing Sunday, Monday, and then I would be back on the floor, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday. So it worked really well. And let me tell you, I worked on the floor full time. I wasn't managing, um, you know, from the office. I was full on on the floor, sweeping the floors, shampooing, doing what everybody else did. And I think setting an example as a salon owner is really important. And I managed that business very well because I actually had a team of people that managed and fired the bullets that I gave them to fire. Um, but after a period of time, I realized that a company can only do so much to elevate your, your profile. And I thank them so much for elevating the profile that they did for me. But if you want to go on to be bigger and better, then you've got to do it yourself. And if people think that they can jump, jump from one company to the other to get to be a superstar, I think you're dreaming. And I've seen a lot of my friends who are successful salon owners, incredibly uh, talented hairdressers, move companies because they weren't getting enough from their companies. Companies can only do so much. At the end of the day, they sell products. And yes, they need someone to be a brand ambassador. They need someone to demonstrate their products. But to be honest, if you think they're going to make you a superstar and give you international stardom, then you've got to do it yourself. You've got to do it yourself. Just excuse me, I need a little sip. I have one of these crazy throats at the moment. So I decided that I would uh, set up the art of education. And we started doing uh, education out of my salon. So when we were closed Monday, Tuesdays, um, we would actually do education there. So just short courses, one or two day classes. We do something every month. Then it got to be maybe a little bit more, more than a month. I had some of my team doing cutting and it was great because it was such a huge um, location to do this. It was ideal to conduct this form of education. And then I started to build that brand where I then used the locations of Goldwell in the capital cities for my own education. So I took a punt on myself, basically. And so I set myself up to sell in the education, get myself there, um, have a team member come with me. So it didn't come 
it came at a cost to me. So I was very focused that I had to sell seats um, for my education. And I also realized very quickly that some states were easier to sell in than others. Sometimes I canceled education because we didn't get the numbers. And you don't go and run at a loss. It's not how you roll. Um, but as time moved on, uh, I guess building our brand through YouTube, um, through Instagram and Facebook, I think we're up to about 450,000 on Facebook and, um, and all natural. We've never bought likes. I'm not a person that goes to look good about buying likes. So everything is a natural growth for us. Um, but, you know, always putting things on YouTube. And then it was interesting. I was starting to see international people come into my classes in Australia. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. But I sort of nutted out what I thought people needed in a class. And I think boot camp has been my greatest achievement. I thought about all the classes that I teach and when I farewell students, and I actually think, yeah, they've had a great day. They've learned a few hairstyles, and that's what I was teaching. But you know what? They can't do anything other than those few hairstyles. They couldn't create anything more than what I've just shown them. So I thought if they could learn good foundational skills, they would be far better equipped to create any style that would pop up. Um, so I sat down and worked out a plan, and it was actually a five-day class, uh, for, you know, which was an eight-hour, five-day class. And it started with blow drying, pin core setting, setting with tongs, setting with hot rollers, um, you know, how to create the classics, how to do the best ponytail, how to blow dry correctly. You know, the whole basic gamut of things that one needs to know. And we, it was an absolutely overpowering success. We took that on the road in Australia. We got massive numbers. We got international uh, people flying in for it. So then I started to take it to America. So Goldwell in America were great. They allowed me to use the Santa Monica Academy and the New York Academy. And we booked that out incredibly. I always made sure I had video content of the class. So I would bring in a videographer and we would put it into a great sort of little promo tape. And then I started to develop a name in America. So America was one of my first places to go. And I attracted some of the best talent in America, people that I still are great mates with today, people that have gone on to win their NAHA awards and people that always cite that class as the one that taught them so much that set them up to be able to achieve what they're achieving. So boot camp is now 58 down the road. Um, we, as I said, we've just finished in Brisbane. We've got another one that we're going to in New York um, in the middle of the month, I think it's, 9th and 10th, something like that. Can't even remember the dates for New York. And it's been a class that's done worldwide. I've attracted students absolutely from the four corners of the world, from Asia and everywhere else. And that's gone on then to set me up to be able to do short courses. And then people are approaching me. So people are seeing that I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm non-brand aligned. So I don't run under a brand. And I think that's one of the biggest key to my international success that, you know, a Weller could call on me, a Moroccan oil calls on me, Gold will call upon me, you know, Davin is calling me because I now take short-term contracts for their dates and then I don't have to be exclusively to them. I must say Goldwell have been great because wherever I go, that is my journey and I'm not with a brand. They're always wonderful and send their products because I do love their products. 
Um, so, but I do love other people's products. I'm happy to work with anything that anyone wants to put in front of me. So being, being open like that to embracing other brands, I think has been important, but to also be workable and um, be appeasing to those brands because some of them put a lot on you. They have certain demands for you. You've got to be able to play the game. So you've got to be always the professional, always being nice and mumsy and whatever you think it needs to get by, it's whatever it needs to get by. But this year we're booked right through right till um, November. We, we kick off um, in October into Madrid, which is a private company. We go to Poland, which is a private company. We we'll go to London, which is I've got a I've got a class there. We're flying back into uh, Bulgaria, which is my brand, but a company is supporting me. We're going to Serbia, but it's a private event, but we're promoting it. We're going to from Serbia to the Canary Islands, which is still to be announced. So that's going to be a private, but we'll promote. So we do join promotions for you know if it's Moroccan oil or a Wella, we'll promote that. Um, but I think, you know, you've just got to be flexible. You've got to be flexible and available. So, yeah, I'm traveling about six months of the year, every alternate month, somewhere oh, around the world. But some amazing places that you get to go to. I know, I and the- I'm handpicking <laughs> them now as I get older. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so I, I can see the, the, the stepping stones in your journey, you know, from educating for a big company and then just, just deciding to start small in your own salon and growing from there. Uh, and then being brave enough to step out on your own, but keeping those alliances strong at the yeah. same time. So I think that's really great for anybody who's aspiring to do that, um, to give an idea of what's possible, I guess, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, this has been amazing. Uh, there's been so much gold in there that I'm sure you're aware, and there have been so many. Uh, if you're driving and listening to this, then, you know, I'm sure – Race back and make sure you re-listen to it and note those things down because there's been lots of takeaways. Don't do it while you're driving. (laughs) All right, Sharon, being a business owner, tell me, please, what is a a quote or a mantra that keeps you going uh, as a business owner? Because it's tough sometimes. Share with us. It doesn't go without stress. Um, When it's wonderful, it's fabulous. When you have the mass walkout, it's debilitating. I think you have to learn to pick yourself up. You have to learn to get on that bike and keep going. You just never stop pedaling. And never realize, I think um, one thing is that no one is forever. So all these wonderful people that join your, your team, they're really on loan. You create a wonderful environment for them so they will stay. But when the, when the, when the train stops, they want to get off. So all these little mantras for me are what it is so if you're driving that train and you're driving well and everybody's happy they don't want to leave you but when something isn't quite right and you know they start looking they start finding the cracks then they find a reason to to, you know go I think the biggest thing though as managing team is not to let the sun go down on a problem if you hear of a problem today you manage it before the sun's gone down today and not leave it fester and I think that as a salon owner is what we do and you would go home you would never sleep at night you would be um, in pain and stress about what's going on and what might happen tomorrow I think if you can get that off your shoulder that monkey off your shoulder immediately it helps you manage yourself in a better way 
because no one's going to look after you but you and it is definitely the way to manage things. The longer you um, hold on to this stuff, the longer you let it manifest, the harder it is to deal with it and the bigger the problem becomes. So that's super important for me is not to let the sun go down on a problem. Great, well said. All right, please tell us where can uh, people find you? Uh, what's your Instagram and your YouTube if people want to get involved in the things and see the amazing things that you're doing? Yeah, is that? so uh, my Instagram is Sharon Blaine Education. And I think YouTube's selling Sharon Blaine Education. To be honest, I don't know the last time I've looked at it. But I know there's probably about 300 videos on there now. And I know when we do the stats for Hair Expo, there's something like 4 million people view those on an annual basis, which is pretty nice. I don't do much with that. Um, we also have the Hair Artist Hub, which is the subscription model, um, which that's the place where I talk to everyone every single day. And, of course, Sharon Blaine um, online. So our online uh you know, lifetime access to my my skills uh, is there. So it's everything in boot camp is on steroids on Sharon Blaine online, and it's a you a buy uh, for six ninety five Australian, and you download and you have it forever. So you can have me in your lounge room forever and ever and ever, which is all the skills that we learn in boot camp, which is you know pretty powerful. So it's a little legacy that I'm proud to be leaving to our industry, and not that I'm leaving in any time soon, but you know, I just love um, the education so much. I'm so passionate. I just want young people to be the best at what they do and stay there because they know they're great and they don't have to leave because they feel that for some reason, you know, the industry's let them down or they don't feel good enough anymore. Um, you know, there's moments in my time not being trained, um, not even having a TAFE qualification that I've been able to think, oh, my God, I'm not doing this well. But sometimes you just have to talk to yourself in a very positive way and get those little little messages out of your head and pull the pull, put the positive vibes in there. But, yeah, jump sure. onto any of those sites and uh, you will see what we're doing if you don't already see them now. All right. Well, thank you. It's been uh, really interesting to listen to your story, but you've also shared so much wisdom at the same time. So it's been really great to have you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Larissa, for having me and, um, and farewell to all your viewers. Um, it's been wonderful to be able to share some of my experiences along the way. Okay, and that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Sharon, for chatting with me today. I absolutely adored having you on the podcast. It's pretty undeniable that one of the biggest and most common struggles faced by salon owners is team management. So don't you agree? Uh, it's a big challenge. It's a big topic that we really, truly have to nail if we want to become the salon CEO of our own business. So that's why I especially love the tips that you had to share all about that and I so resonate with the baby onslaught like that is a real thing in our industry on the topic of building awesome teams I actually have a free revamp, revamped <laughs> guide available for you on how to attract a rock star team now I know the tricky part for many is just getting people to apply and turn up to an interview as a starting place so if you want to build a profitable salon you need the right team you need any team you need our team, not any team, the right team. But I know it's getting harder and harder to find good people. Well, this guide is for you, so you'll never have to wonder where your next staff member is coming from again. It seriously is a must-have, and it's free. So I'm going to give you the link and the show notes to this podcast on our dub dub dub. So 
go and grab it if you haven't already. Okay, otherwise, I look forward to tuning in with you again next week. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the podcast. Tune in every week as I reveal the latest insights and advice on what it takes to truly master your inner salon CEO and master your salon success. Subscribe to the Salon Owners Collective podcast on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at www.salonownerscollective.com. But make sure to join me in my Facebook group for answers to common questions and much, much more. Thanks for listening and I look forward to tuning in with you again next week.